0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 168, recorded on December 20th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news, and let's start with a real shocker. Google is
1: killing another project. Unfortunately, I can't say I'm surprised. This time around, the dead project is Google's Android Things, a version of Android meant for the Internet of Things. Google announced it had basically given up on the project as a general-purpose IoT operating system back in 2019, but now there's an official shutdown date, thanks to a new FAQ page detailing the demise of the OS.
0: Yeah, And with all things in the IoT space generally these days, it's, it's not just the device support, there's a service attached as well, and the Android Things dashboard, which is used for managing devices, will stop accepting new devices and projects in just three weeks,
1: on January 5th, 2021. Developers will be able to continue updating existing deployments until January 5th, 2022. So that's one more year there. But uh, after that, Google says the console will be turned down completely. And all project data will be permanently deleted, including build configurations and factory images. So, hey, better grab those while you can.
0: Wow. Uh, For those of you that don't recall... Since I don't think this was a hugely successful product for Google, Android Things was a stripped-down version of Google's phone OS that was ideally meant for the Internet of Things, small, cheap devices like sensors and smart home devices. The idea was that Android would bring a wide hardware compatibility, huge plus for manufacturers, an established app SDK, which they might likely already be writing apps for, and, of course, Google's easy-to-access cloud platform platform along with regular security updates delivered via that platform. Google kind of took the Apple strategy for Androids things for Android Things, um, where they were much more in control of the updates. They centrally distributed them. OEM sent them the firmware and the software. Google massaged them and then deployed them. Uh, IoT admins just had to go log into the dashboard and hit the ship update button on their Android and Things dashboard, which then
1: Google would send off. I wonder if maybe this wasn't so surprising, because part of the problem with Android things was that Android is just really heavy, at at least for an embedded operating system. You know, the phones in our pockets these days are are pretty beefy, and even then, Android's not exactly snappy. So while an OS for smartphones can be extended to cars and TVs, there's just, it's just bigger, more power hungry than you really need. <laughs> I, I saw a link to a demo of a sample, you know, Android Things app and then compared it to a little C++ application for targeting embedded space. And the amount of boilerplate, it, it was just kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, and you could see it even in, you know, semi-nice vehicles that would have built-in Android integration or televisions that would use it. It would just be really slow. And, and I think everyone noticed when Google shipped their own IOT devices on modified versions of their Google Cast platform instead of Android Things. Right. <laughs> this was a real indicator that maybe there's a problem here. And in a way, it was sort of a screw you to Google's OEMs, too, because groups like Lenovo would come along and they'd make a Lenovo Smart Display using, you know, essentially the Google Assistant software, but running on top of Android Things. And then Google would come along, undercut them on price, and and overperform because they were using their Cast platform, which is essentially based off of Gen 2 Linux. <laughs> and so I think it was really kind of this awkward situation where even Google
1: found it not necessarily the most compelling option. Yeah, there just wasn't that much commitment here, and so it was never really adopted. But there were promises made. When Android Things launched in May 2018... Google promised free stability fixes and security patches for three years for every Android Things device. And it told developers its hardware was certified for production use with guaranteed long-term support for three years, which is something you might want if you're going to be, you know, making products that ship and live in consumers' homes.
0: Yeah, or if you're buying them for your factory floor, you want something that's going to have a guaranteed support lifecycle. Well, so that put Google on the hook until May of 2021. But based on the frequently asked questions they posted and the official Android Things release page, it sounds like Google is not going to honor that promise. The last Android Things release listed was August of 2019, putting Google's actual update support at one year and three months. And since there's no new devices coming, no new projects being accepted to the
1: dashboard, (laughs) it seems like that's the end of things. So long, Android Things. Unfortunately, the entire Android ecosystem struggles with support life cycles, but that's why it's kind of interesting to see Google and Qualcomm teaming up to enable a longer support window for flagship Android smartphones. Qualcomm, with Google's help, will now support its chipsets for three years of major OS updates and four years of security updates, enabling a perhaps better-than-pixel level for all future Android phones. Well, provided your OEM is willing to cooperate. Yeah,
0: they got to get them nice, fancy Qualcomm chips. Uh, this policy is starting with the flagship Snapdragon 888, but Qualcomm does say even their lower end chips will be supported down the road, including their, quote, lower tier ones,
1: end quote. But they are starting with this new Snapdragon
0: 888 platform.
1: Part of what makes this so difficult is that there's just a lot of moving pieces and a lot of different actors involved in, in Android release and lifecycle, right? I mean, you've got your actual OEM that's making the phone, getting their own skin on there, and then you've got to have support lower down in the stack from people like Qualcomm, who've got to make sure that all the you know actual bits and bobs work so you can receive your text messages. And drivers for those bits and bobs as the OS updates. Yeah, absolutely, right? And then you've actually got the open source part of Android and Google's internal workings over at the Android repository, that has to come together, Qualcomm has to keep up, and then the OEMs have to integrate all of that before any of it ever gets in your hands.
0: And that's to say nothing if the carriers get involved with any bits of it. Let's hope not. (laughs) Right. Practically speaking, this means that Android will be supported on the 888 Snapdragon with version 11, 12, 13, and 14. That's remarkable. So as a consumer, if this is something you care about now, you can start shopping for these Snapdragons that will be supported like this. Starting with 888, you'll know you've got until Android 14 with that device. That's really nice.
1: Yeah, I really hope this is a sea change eventually for the whole Android ecosystem because it's just been embarrassing. You know, you you can have a perfectly functional phone, say a Google Pixel 2, works just fine, no longer supported with updates just for for no reason, it feels like, and especially when that other ecosystem does this a lot better. That's true. That's true. That's why I'm also grateful for projects like Lineage and all the other
0: efforts out there to get alternative operating systems on some of these devices. Uh, and while that's great for free software consumers like ourselves, it doesn't really work for the average phone buyer who goes into the carrier store and picks up a phone, where these changes actually will improve their
1: quality of life, because some of these are security fixes. Yes, it's especially nice, I think, for that reason to see it in some of the lower-end models, possibly, you know, because I need a phone I can recommend to my mom, and she doesn't want to spend flagship money. Well, speaking of saving a little money, Neverware was an organization
0: that let you turn an old PC or Mac into a Chromebook S device through its cloud-ready OS, and it was mostly aimed at schools and enterprises for obvious reasons. They did make a free home edition that was available to anyone to download for free. Well, now this week we find out that Google has acquired NeverWare and CloudReady with plans to
1: integrate it into Chrome OS. The news was quietly announced by NeverWare back on Monday afternoon, and it comes after Google invested in a Series B funding round three years ago. For their part, Google says we can confirm that the NeverWare team is joining the Google Chrome OS team. As we continue to support customers with their transition to the cloud, NeverWare has offered a valuable solution cloud ready that allows customers to unlock the manageability speed and productivity of a chrome device following our partnership over the past few years we're looking forward to working more closely with the team to support more customers in their transition to deploy chrome os i bet they are I and mean, this sounds
0: exactly like it is uh, Neverware's cloud ready os is based on chromium and they've essentially recreated aspects of chrome os for general pcs you can see why maybe schools that already had a fleet of Chromebooks and they could take old laptops and convert those into Chromebooks and manage them with the same tools. You can see how that could be a compelling solution. Uh, in their FAQ, they say over the long term, Cloud ready will become an official Chrome OS offering. Um, that's interesting. And they say existing customers will be upgraded seamlessly when that happens. That's also interesting. That does suggest a high level of integration. Um, it actually reads to me like Google is going to actually fully incorporate this. Instead of just acquire it to perhaps get rid of competition that is taking market from new Chromebooks, it seems like they have
1: an eye to use this to extend Chrome OS. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think it is hopefully good news in the short term for Neverware users and that they'll have tighter integration, probably faster updates and sounds like updates that fall in line more with the official Chrome OS updates and not how Neverware was previously doing it. But uh, given our previous story, hopefully nothing changes uh, uh, too soon here. Yeah, as for their part, Neverwhere is currently promising there'll be no changes for
0: the free home edition or other support policies, but we'll be watching. Chromebooks and Chrome OS in general are just a fascinating story over 2020, and ChromeUnbox.com has a hint that there may be native Steam gaming coming to Chromebooks, essentially by parsing through uh, commits and looking at an Ubuntu-based container that's being built out for Chrome OS, they are coming to the conclusion that it's not just going to be Stadia or um, NVIDIA game streaming, but you're actually going to have... Chromebooks, perhaps with Ryzen CPU and GPUs in them, very soon
1: that are capable of playing the native video games. Wow, it's kind of new territory. You know, it's from what started as a very limited purpose built OS, um, suddenly it has grown a lot of new features. But it makes sense they've invested a lot in the underlying, you know, Christini technology, the Linux True. containers under the hood, and. Um, playing games would be a great result
0: and why not if you got the horsepower in there you got the native uh, linux os there you can put everything in a container why not do it the project is called borealis we'll have a link in the show notes uh we'll see if this actually develops but right now the rumor has it arriving mid 2021 sort of soft rolling out as some new hardware lands for Chromebooks. hey maybe one more reason
1: not to get your next windows box
0: linode.com slash land go there to get a $100 60 day credit towards a new account and go there to support this here show linode is our cloud server provider i was spending a good chunk of friday trying out different things i ended up with a new linode that i use as sort of a interstitial cloud box for my sync thing network slash empire what i do is really quite simple they set up a linode five dollar box and if you go there and get our $100 credit, you can play with something a lot more powerful than that. But I got the $5 box, and then I attached a two terabyte storage. Boom, put it on there, and I'm just experimenting right now. I don't actually need that much storage, but again, $100 credit, right? <laughs> so I threw that on there, put sync thing in a container, and got it going. And I'll tell you what, it actually made a nice, improvement in my performance for all of my machines. Now they're syncing from multiple locations, and at $5 a month, I think I'm gonna keep it. I'll just refine the storage to exactly what I need. And Linode makes it so easy to do that on demand. As soon as I created the device, they gave me the commands, just copy-paste them right into the terminal to, if I wanted to, to mount it as extended four and all that, really straightforward, because they, they make it so easy to just get in, get what you need, and get out. And that's why I love their dashboard. I think they really nailed that. You know, they started in 2003. They've been around for a really long time. That's three years before AWS and other enterprise providers, but they're independently owned. Unlike some cloud providers that maybe have a secret investor or a rich Bezos, Linode is independently owned. They're the largest independent cloud provider. How great is that? And while they've been coming along, they've been investing in open source projects and get-togethers. Like all things open, my beloved Linux Fest Northwest, tons of local hackathons and meetups. And now here they are supporting not just this podcast, but lots of Linux content creators that got into this for a love with with a passion for Linux. And now They're supporting the entire Linux ecosystem, and they make a great cloud offering. They're dedicated to offering the best in virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode, including S3-compatible object storage, node balancers, cloud firewalls, Kubernetes, and Terraform support, it's all there. So go to linode.com slash land to try it out, get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account, and you support the show. That's linode.com
1: slash land. After more than four years of development, GTK 4 has finally arrived. As you can imagine, it's a massive update and a huge milestone for the development of the open source and cross-platform GTK widget toolkit, which is widely used for creating graphical user interfaces for Linux apps. And, of course, for the GNOME project and the wonderful GNOME desktop.
0: Now, for all of you out there going, um, actually, Wes, it's GTK Plus? Well, that has changed. With this release, they're dropping the Plus. Because really no one was saying it anyways, but they've, they've really worked on this one. There's been 20 development releases, 18,000 commits. Now baked in is improved media playback, Drake and drop support, layout managers and transform transforms, uh, scalable lists and grids. Support for shaders, support for Vulkan in here, render nodes, and of course, nice to see some improved accessibility. Overall, there's a lot of really good stuff that developers now just get by using GTK4.
1: GTK4 is now considered stable for applications to start using and porting to. But don't worry, GTK3 will continue to be maintained for the foreseeable future. But GTK2 is no longer going to be supported. It's done, so better upgrade.
0: Also, just recently, Qt Six came out, and the Neon Project announced that there was a release of Neon that is basing around Qt Six now. So we're starting to see the Cute adoption for Six over there. That's really cool. And you see the uh, GTK forty, uh, or I'm sorry, you see GTK four stuff landing right around the time GNOME forty is in in development. So there'll likely be parts of GNOME forty that use GTK four. I wouldn't imagine. It's all of it. But I think this is part of the reason why they changed, if I recall, the versioning of the GNOME desktop is because they wanted to avoid
1: the confusion between GTK itself, the toolkit, and the desktop GNOME. Yeah, that and, um, well, they didn't want to have bad conceptions about what 4.0 meant because, you know, as, as we mentioned on the show, it's really just an evolution. It's not a new, huge, crazy release. It's just the next version of the release, you know? Yeah.
0: Although they have been demoing a brand
1: new uh, activities overview, and it's blowing people's
0: minds, Wes. It's blowing their minds.
1: Well, something else that was blowing people's minds was trying to find our gosh darn Matrix server. That's why it's really nice to see some upgraded support and improvements to Matrix.2. Yeah, Matrix.2 is a simple URL redirection service,
0: essentially, which lets users share links to rooms and communities, and it's not tied to any specific client. It kind of works as a as an entry way to get into a Matrix chat. In fact, it's often the very first experience people
1: have with Matrix. And until there's a Matrix colon slash slash URI scheme, which actually they just Just did recently register with the IANA, so that's exciting. That's awesome. Um, Matrix.2 is pretty much the only client-agnostic way to link to content in Matrix, and that's pretty important because while it's great that you can use whatever client you want with Matrix, it makes it a little bit more difficult for onboarding. You don't say, just go get Discord. You say, well, learn about what Matrix is and go figure out that there's multiple clients, and then without knowing anything about it, decide which client's right for you. Pick that, install it, and then you can use our server.
0: Yeah, and they've they've kind of come up with a way to present this information now in a much more consumable way for end users, and they have spent a lot of time reworking this from scratch to help users find the best client to get started. Also, you can have it optionally remember your choices for future visits. And it will get full, useful previews in the selection screen, so you get an idea of what you are going into. And I think this is more and more important, as over 2020 I have seen a lot of open-source projects adopt Matrix for their group chat. Um, And it's nice, because it sort of has slowed what I have seen as a bleeding to Slack, which has never felt like a great fit for open-source projects. And to see more and more pick up Matrix, that's wonderful. But now, as we've discovered firsthand...
1: How do you get people into those rooms? Right. Once, you've, once you're have once you there, it's great. It's a good experience, but it can be um, a little bit tricky.
0: Yeah. And it's not like IRC is simple, but it's been around forever. So people know, okay, I need an IRC client, and I need to slash join, and you can go Google the command syntax real quick if you don't remember how to change your password or anything like that. But Matrix is still pretty new, and so they have an opportunity here to make this onboarding process a little bit simpler, and I think this is going to help. And I'm looking forward to us making it simpler to link to our
1: colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com matrix server. Yeah, you know, I was was trying this out last night and it works pretty nicely. It was a good experience. It's nice to see them investing. Um, And in case you're worried, it is privacy preserving. They've thought of that. No information stored on the server side. All the calculations done just in client side JavaScript. So don't have to worry about that. It's funny too that this started out as just a sort of minimal viable product. You know, oh, here's a quick idea. Now you can link to rooms. It could have remained that way. But, you know, thanks to actual time and effort here, we've got a much better product and I love it another
0: area that's getting some work. I mean it's it's totally totally proof of concept, but they have introduced over at Matrix a a possible a possible social network that lives on top of Matrix. It's it's called Cerulean and it's kind of like a Twitter or Mastodon that is using underpinnings of Matrix chat rooms. I, I don't know why, but I kind of like it.
1: Well, I think it's just an interesting attempt to stretch the capabilities of matrix right to see can you build the system like this given the primitives that you have because as much as matrix is you know something we see as a client facing user just chatting with the folks in our community really it's this this whole rich ecosystem of protocols that you can use to work together to build all kinds of things. And one of the things they've been working on here is um, more arbitrary nested threading support. And so there's some potential improvements that they've only implemented so far in Dendrite, which is the up-and-coming Rust-based home server that has a lot of exciting new features, perhaps like this, where it's getting tried out. So if you want to go play with it, uh, you can view it online, or you can even register. Um, They've got their own test Dendrite server running, and then Right now, the only test instance of Cerulean is talking to that.
0: You know, this is your Linux Action News pro tip here, but if Matrix is one of those topics you've kind of been avoiding, you like, oh, I don't need anything else, is fine, or whatever, maybe maybe, maybe 2021 is the year to start taking it seriously. There's some really awesome free software getting developed here, and there's a lot of great communities that are collecting over
1: there. It doesn't take anything away from any of the other great places. And, um, you know, with, with all the bridges, Matrix is not too bad to be a, a part of because you can connect to a lot of other communities. That's a great point. One other interesting aspect that they're playing with as a way to perhaps change or um, improve the Matrix platform is decentralized reputation, right? How do you, one, one problem in some of these decentralized communities is, well, how do you manage problematic users, spams, trolls? That can be difficult. There's some ideas, the the Matrix folks have put out a blog post and some videos talking about some of their ideas, and maybe Cerulean will be the first place that you see those attempted.
0: Yeah, it could be a really kind of a, a decent way to solve that problem. Um, and, you know, you could just avoid certain types of topics if that's your preference. You don't have to avoid people. You could avoid topics. Or the opposite is true. If there's a certain topic you're particularly interested in, I think you could uh, probably find it a little easier. Indeed. <laughs> linux.ting.com. The next generation of Ting mobile is here. So go see how much you could save and get $25 off at linux.ting.com. I have been a customer of Ting for over eight years. And now I can tell you is the best time ever to sign up for Ting. So go to linux.ting.com and see what I'm talking about. If you do want to talk and text, you can get that for just $10 a month. Yeah. Yeah. And data plans, they start at $15, and they have unlimited plans that start at $45. How about that? So if you use 2 gigs, 20 gigs, 100 gigs, there's going to be a perfect Ting plan for you and your family. Don't worry. Don't worry. The only thing that's changing here is lower monthly prices. You still get access to Ting's award-winning customer service with nationwide LTE and 5G coverage and no contracts ever. You can pretty much take care of everything through Ting's dashboard. Really, yeah, dang near everything in a way that sets the bar above what every other carrier allows you to do. But twice, in eight years, I have had to call in one time when I was on the road and struggling to get a myFi that I'd bought off Amazon working. They had no reason to stay on the phone with me for as long as they did, but two hours later, and really them just trying out, out everything they could, we actually had it up at running, and I had connectivity on the road. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the, the rep really invested in solving my problem. That is sticking around. But now, you can choose from three different plans based on your data needs. It's simple to switch to Ting, so you just head to linux.ting.com and check your current phone. Pretty much any phone will work on Ting. You create an account, you pick the plan that's right for you and the fam, or just you, or I don't know, I don't judge your whole crew. I don't know how you do. And then Ting will send you the SIM card. You pop it in your phone and you get going. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's, mobile, with Ting's new mobile plans. You can get talk and text for $10 a month and data plan starting at 15 and 25, and then unlimited for 45. You just gotta get the right one for you. It'll be all explained on the Ting website This is great. After eight years, I can say this truly is the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here. Go see how much you can save and get $25 off at linux.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring this show and making it possible for independent media to put their content out there for free. And thanks to everybody who visits linux.ting.com.
1: Google's AMP previously known as Accelerated Mobile Pages, took a beating this week as an antitrust lawsuit filed by the Attorney General of Texas charges that the ad company used AMP to hinder competition. And on Friday, Terrence Eden, a prominent member of the AMP Advisory Committee, which was formed two years ago in response to criticism that the AMP project ignored publisher concerns, announced his resignation, citing the project's failure to make the web better.
0: Yeah, AMP was created by Google in 2015 with the public argument that it was designed to make the mobile web load faster and essentially as a defense against things like the Apple News format and Facebook Instant Articles. But the technology has had its detractors almost since its inception, and over time that has just grown louder and louder. So by 2018, Google attempted to satisfy some of these critics by broadening the governance of AMP And uh, they said we would bring it beyond just Google employees. It would be more like a true open
1: source project. But any goodwill Google may have won with those actions could be undone if these claims about AMP in the new complaint prove true. For some context here, after the complaint was made public, Robin Bergeon, VP of Data Governance at the New York Times, said on Twitter that every time I point out that AMP is bad, someone from Google will tell me it's not. This new complaint indicates that Google has documented exactly how bad AMP is and ties it to a deliberate play to prevent competition from header bidding. That is interesting because it gets into some potential foul play attempts in the web ad market, but the complaint goes further than that. Yeah, the complaint also claims that Google's transfer of AMP to the OpenJS Foundation doesn't really change the company's capacity to control the project because, quote, Google controls the foundation's board and debates internally. It also alleges that Google falsely told publishers that adopting AMP would enhance load times and that the company went so far as to hinder non-AMP ads by giving them artificial one-second delays to convince publishers not to use header bidding. That doesn't sound good. No, not fair at all. (laughs) But again, these these are allegations. We don't know if that's true. True, true. Uh, The AMP committee member
0: who resigned uh, in his post, which we do have linked in the show notes, said that You know, he joined because the stated goal of the committee was to make AMP a great web citizen. But uh, he then went on to say, I'm concerned that despite the hard work of the AMP committee, Google has
1: limited interest in that goal. I think that's the crux of the issue here. Um, It's tricky because AMP on its own, just on technical grounds, is kind of controversial. And I I can see how... Reasonable people might come down either way on if it's a good thing or not. But all of Google's involvement here, it, you just you just can't separate that out. I mean, to this day, there's still only two caches. Uh, that's Google's and Bing's, and Bing's is actually still pretty recently added. So it's hard to argue that Google's not really pulling the strings. And even if you want to make AMP great for everyone, it doesn't seem like they're that interested, unfortunately.
0: AWS is trying to show them up by supporting the Blender project They note that, quote, we are excited to continue to expand our support of open source solutions for our customers in the digital content creation space. That was the GM of Creative Tools at AWS. Also, it looks like the Blender Foundation will start recruiting throughout the course
1: of 2021, pending current travel and meeting restrictions being lifted or relaxed. AWS committed to a period of three years for this support, and uh, specifically to support character animation tools development, which is something the, the Blender's been working on with a new character animation system dubbed Animation 2020. And it seems like some folks at AWS, like industry veteran Jason Schleifler, a creative director there, are quite interested in seeing this continuing to develop. Why, why do you suppose they have interest in something like Blender? Are people uploading Blender projects to the cloud? So yes, actually, um, some folks do use AWS for media and content creation, including rendering big renders on cloud powerhouse boxes. And it sounds like with things like AWS ThinkBox and other digital content creation, it's an area AWS is looking to explore. Hmm.
0: So that is fascinating. Didn't expect that. I, I think I've also seen that there is, and I don't really fully appreciate it, but there is some working with with AI models of some type in Blender as well, that might also be an interest
1: of AWS. Well, you know, it has definitely been an interest of some other past supporters like Microsoft and Facebook, both who specifically mentioned training AR or AI models with Blender. Uh, Microsoft's case is actually kind of interesting. They're taking data and then building synthetic training data with these, they're, they're making human models, moving the models around and then using that as training data for their AI systems. Crazy. That is really wild.
0: Yeah, they Microsoft joined the Blender Development Fund on July 29th of this year. Unity joined the Blender Development Fund as well on August 21st. And Facebook joined this year on November 19th. Um, and they say here, part of that, Facebook has been building tools that help artists turn their Blender creations into engaging AR experiences in Spark AR. So a lot of different motivations coming together to back the blend. Blender Foundation, which means
1: they have a decent amount of cash coming in now. Yeah, they sure do. $155,567 is a monthly contribution from 5,283 individuals and 53 corporate backers. They get 33% of their income from individual sponsors, 28 just from epic games hey what a patron that is no kidding and then 27 percent from other corporate sponsors and what do they do with that money well primarily they pay salaries for people to develop blender along with other support for the project
0: this is really fascinating to see because we've always talked about what does it take to develop a truly industrial grade tool in the audio visual space And now we're seeing i mean it takes staff it takes funding and it takes market momentum to really build a tool at um
1: at this scale and i'm 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 really impressed to just watch blender go it's it's amazing and i think it is really an open source success story in the best case of we figured out that in this case, right, a good open source 3D modeling program is better as open source shared infrastructure than it is in having competing proprietary applications. Like, tons of companies and individuals need this stuff. Let's all work on it together.
0: Well, that open source kumbaya brings us to the end of this week's podcast. But go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get every new episode. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to give us your thoughts. I invite you to join us for the Coda Radio Happy Hour at jblive.tv, Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. We'll be back next Monday with
1: our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week.